A God who will never let us go. Such good news. Let's turn to his word uh, as we continue in part five of a sermon series through 1 Timothy, uh, the for the flourishing of the household of God. And this morning we're going to look at the primacy of prayer. I received a, a call from one of uh, the elders from one of the biggest churches in town. You know the name. It's, it's been a big church in town for a really long time. Uh, and he asked me to go have lunch with him. And I tell you one thing that you want to get this size, you never do, is turn down a free lunch, right? So he was off to a good start. And so I said, absolutely, I'd love to have lunch with you. I was in transition, uh, transitioning from a ministry that I was a part of for a very long time to a new ministry, a, a church plant, uh, which is perfect for a guy in his 50s uh, to go ahead and start, starting a new church. And as I met with him for lunch, he told me, that he really felt that God was leading him, God was telling him to come alongside and help me. And again, I didn't know him, and he, he didn't know me too well. We knew our families a little bit, but I didn't know what that looked like. But he said, you know, I really feel like God is calling me to walk alongside you in ministry. And I want to say, hey, you're off to a great start. You're buying my lunch, and so this is a fantastic way to start, but really don't know what that would look like. I didn't know what really he could provide. Um, I didn't know uh, how our partnership would happen. But by God's grace, he was a man of prayer. And that's exactly what we needed more than anything else was a man of prayer. A man who believed in prayer. A, a man who believed that God listens. That God acts upon our prayers. A man who's passionate about it. So the first time that Katie and I drove around, and we did this a lot as we were wondering where we were going to plant a church, we really felt called to this area, we drove in to this place. And the very first time, we had a different feeling than any other feeling we had when we looked at different elementary schools or, or schools or other churches that possibly we could rent, specifically looking for Seventh-day Adventist churches because they're there on Saturday and we could be here on Sunday. But when we pulled into this church, Something happened that never happened before. We just like, felt like we're home. I mean, there was this unbelievable feeling, and by God's grace, Katie and I both shared it at the same time. We looked at each other like, huh, this place kind of feels right. We never even came inside. We just saw the building from the parking lot, and we prayed. And we said, God, this is our future home. Would you make it so? Would you open up the doors? If this is to be where King's Chapel gives birth, its first home, may this be the place. That very same day, unbeknownst to, to Katie and me, is uh, that this man of prayer, uh, who also has been looking for a place for us to worship, uh, was here for like the seventh time and finally met with some of the leaders. Finally met with some to say, hey, we're going to start a new church and we're interested in starting right here. And here we are. Amazing. And have you seen the stained glass? Have I mentioned that to you? Is it not absolutely beautiful? Well, his name, and many of you know and love him, his name is Robbie Robinson, a man of prayer, a man of God, and a man who I'm sure right now is not enjoying any of this attention at all. But brother, we love you. This church was given birth by God's grace through prayer, uh, through prayer uh, on our knees of what God might do. May our church always have the mantra that we are the house of God, and this will be a house of prayer. 
that prayer will always have preeminence and priority in all that we do. Well, again, this morning we're in the fifth uh, week of a sermon series entitled For the Flourishing of the Household of God. We're looking through this incredible, what's called a pastoral epistle, an epistle's a letter. It's called pastoral epistle because it's not directed primarily to a church in a certain city like Ephesus or Corinth. It's directed to an individual. This is directed to Timothy, a young pastor, a young preacher. He happens to be in Ephesus, but Paul is writing to one he will call his true son, uh, somebody who would journey with Paul, somebody whose name would be on many of the letters that Paul wrote to those churches, the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Um, so he is writing to Timothy, uh, and it really is an owner's manual for the church. If you ever want to look at, I mean, all of God's Word will tell us who He is and how we are to live. But of all the 66 books, 1 Timothy is so practical. It tells us so much of how we are to function as a church. For the church to be properly run and for the world to be thoroughly won. God gave us 1 Timothy to make sure that we have that. We've already determined some important things in this book that we as a church, we need sound doctrine, uh, kind of ground, grinding, grounding us our, as our foundation. Uh, not grinding us, but, uh, well, you may want to grind us into Christ-likeness, but making sure that, that no matter what society says, no matter what our culture goes, that we will stick to God's Word and we're going to stick to sound doctrine. But with that, we've already learned that we need abounding grace, that God is very serious about His Word and how we are to live it, but God is so merciful to sinners. Paul will call himself a chief of sinners. He'll call himself like the worst of sinners. And God's abounding, overflowing grace into his life. If you are a Christian, uh, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe your story isn't as bad as Paul's. Maybe you never persecuted the church. But I'm telling you this, if you're his, you have tasted and experienced abounding grace, of grace of God that saves sinners like us. We also learned that we have to fight the good fight, that we as a church were in a fight, and we can't fight one another. We've got to be fighting for the glory of our great God, fighting for the good of our neighbor. And in many ways, this fight is different than our, our forefathers have, even in this country, that this, this fight is a fight that we are to have uh, for, for His glory and making sure that we are fighting for truth. And this morning, we're going to see the primacy of prayer that we got to be a people of prayer. We're going to see three things this morning. First thing is this, the primacy of prayer. Uh, second thing we're going to see is prayer of, for all kinds of people. And then thirdly, prayer in all kinds of places. Let's look to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off. In chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. Here the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God 
And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given in the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold, or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your truth, and we thank you for this letter that you used the Apostle Paul to write to Timothy while he was at the church in, 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 in Ephesus. And God, it was written so long ago for those people. But God, because it was inspired by your Holy Spirit, that Paul was writing the Word of God, it's for us as well. It's for us here at King's Chapel on July 4th in 2021. So God, would you bring this Word alive to us? God, would you help us to make sense of it God, would you be pleased to speak through a broken sinner like me? Oh God, would you give us ears to hear your voice and, and minds that would understand your word? God, would you give us hearts to embrace your truth? And God, would you give us feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name? Father, the things I say that are wrong or merely my opinion, may those things be forgotten and fall away quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel... Would you use those things to make us more like Christ, your Son, our Savior, in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. The first thing we're going to see in this passage is the primacy of prayer. First of all, of first importance. Uh, Paul is going to say, now first of importance, he's going to say, first of all, not necessarily in time, but this is really going to say more important, uh, that you've got to be praying. That the bedrock of the church has got to be a church that is in prayer. Why? Because we are a community that worships God. We are a worship community. Prayer should be always a staple of our, com our community. And worship is the one thing, the most important thing that the church will do. What's the most important thing the church will do? Is it missions? Important but not most important. Is it evangelism? Important but not most important. Is it mercy ministry? Important but not most important. What's the most important thing the church does? It's worship. Worship is something that will never cease in the church. We will always worship. Every other activity that the, worship, uh, that the church does will one day come to a close, will one day stop. One day there'll be no more need to evangelize. One day there'll be no more need to, to show mercy and have mercy ministry. One day is coming where, where every, every uh, brokenness, every, everything that is wrong is going to be undone and we'll be home. Everything the church does one day will come to an end except for worship. We were created to worship and it'll never cease. This week, uh, Katie and I had the privilege of being up in Norfolk, Virginia with Jesse and Todd, our son and daughter-in-law and our three grandchildren. 
and we went to the botanical gardens there, uh, beautiful gardens and um, really hot. But we were there, and as we were there, really the highlight for my two-year-old Polly was not the gardens, or the butterflies were a big hit. It was really the water pad. It was the water pad that shot up in the ground. What a great invention that was, isn't it? I mean, so much better than pools. I mean, just have water shoot up through the ground. Kids are going to be safe. They're going to have a great time. And it was awesome watching all the kids play. But I remember there were, there was, we were there, about three or four young people were brought in wheelchairs. And their bodies were, were, were quite broken. I don't know exactly. They weren't normal wheelchairs. They were kind of on an angle where they could be more laying down. And they brought these wheelchairs into the water for the water to splash on their feet and to, to experience that. And I was overwhelmed. I couldn't watch. I had to turn away and weep. I just had to weep thinking, God, the brokenness of our world. The brokenness of, of, of the sin-torn world. And I was so grateful for those who cared for them. And I was so overwhelmed thinking, well, why, why are my grandchildren so healthy? And look at these. And I long for the day where that brokenness will be no more. And that day's coming. But until that day, we're going to live in a society and live with our own lives that are filled with brokenness and despair. But the good news is, is that He is making all things new. I've gotten a little bit off track, but I want to say that worship is primary. It's the most important thing that church will do, but prayer is the most important thing a Christian will do. It really is. Pray. What's the most important thing you can do as a Christian? Pray. Talk to your Heavenly Father because of the work of your Son. Prayer is the most important thing you should be doing, I should be doing, Robbie Robinson, all of us should be praying. We are to pray, each one of us. The Bible is talking, uh, as God's talking to us, and our prayers are our talking back to God. It's not just for the prayer warriors. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the most important thing you can do is in dialogue and communication and prayer with your God. I remember reading about, uh, in the Vietnam War, the, the snipers who were trained when they came along a platoon uh, that was going through the jungles, that the sniper's job, his first and foremost job, was to actually take out the radio operator. To take out the radio operator first, and with such skill, if he could take it out with one bullet that would go through the operator, but also through the walkie-talkie, through the radio. Because why? The first thing they wanted to do was cut off communication. Communication uh, with uh, the base, communication with those above them, the authority, the power, and then cause chaos. That's what our enemy would love to do. The first thing he wants to do is try to cut off communication with our God. God has given us access to him anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And he's called us to be a people of prayer. And the enemy would love to destroy the communication. Why? As the communication with God is destroyed, the mission of God is weakened. I love also when you read about Jesus, even at the end of his life, he walks into the temple, and what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He turns over the money changer tables. He gets angry with everything that, that shouldn't be there that is there. He gets angry with all that is taken away from the glory of God and the reality that God and his people are meeting together. And he cleanses the temple and he says this, my house should be a house of prayer. Wow. I tell you what, the religious people did not like him quoting Isaiah and picking up that verse and making it personal. But Jesus himself says, my house should be a house of prayer. Our life should be a life of prayer. And we should be a people of prayer. King's Chapel, we need to be 
of first importance, a house of prayer. Second thing we got to have, prayers for all kinds of people. And by the way, the word all here is so important. I don't know if you picked it up when I read scripture, but it's going to say we are to offer uh, prayer for all people. And it's going to say not only that, but, but God desires that all people should be saved and that Jesus is the ransom for all people. There's, there's this incredible universal love of God and this incredible call to all. And he says, by the way, prayer should be made for all peoples. Prayer should be made for those people who are like us and those who people who are not like us. Prayer should be made for those that we like and prayers for those that we don't. Prayer should be made for those who are near and those who are far away. We are to pray for them all. Now, when he says that prayer is to be made for all people, is Paul expecting Timothy to pray for every human being on the face of the earth? Absolutely not. That would be ludicrous. So what does it mean when he says prayer should be made for all people? He's talking about types. Prayer should be made for all types of people. If you're a Democrat, pray for the Republicans. If you're a Republican, pray for the Democrats. If, if you like this, pray for those who don't like that. I mean, we should be praying for all types of people. Who do we usually pray for? Our holy huddle. Those who are like us. Those that, that look like us, vote like us, smell like us, think like us. We vote for them. And he's saying, listen, pray for them all. Pray for all types of people. Not only that, that's so important. He says, pray for kings and all who are in high position. Uh, God's word calls us to pray for those in the positions of authority. As a matter of fact, we read God's word, especially things like Romans 13, and we realize no one is in authority apart from God's placing them there. God is sovereign over all authority, and there's a scratch of your head about some of the authority that God has placed in power. But Romans 13 says, hey, I'm sovereign. They're there. And we are to pray for all those over authority. When this was written, this was written, there wasn't a Christian king. This is clearly not talking about just praying for those kings or those authorities who love Jesus. This was written at a time of Nero was king. He set Christians on fire to light up Rome. And here you have the audacity and the grace of God saying, pray for him. Pray for the kings, those who are in authority over us. Don't just complain about them. And hit pause. We live in a crazy political time. And it seems like there's not a lot of dialogue between where you stand. It seems like we throw a lot more stones at each other than we offer prayers for one another. So let me just ask you, are you praying for our leaders? Where, that should be a part of our lives should be a part of our church. I was convicted about this. I mean, I'm reading this thing, man, King's Chapel, we need more prayer. Uh, and pray for those who God has placed over us. Not just complain about them. So here's what he says. Pray for them. It's interesting. Why? So that we can have peaceable and quiet lives. Why would God care for us to have peaceable, peaceful and quiet lives? Really, ultimately, for our mission to flourish. This whole thing of prayer has a very strong evangelistic tone. It's going to be talking about one God, one mediator. It's going to be talking about God's desire to save all kinds of people. So there, there was this, listen, he wants us to have peaceful and quiet lives for our mission to flourish. If we're in the midst of strife, it's, not, it's going to be difficult. Interestingly, what God did in his grace and timing, 
In the fullness of time, God would send His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to set us free and redeem us. That time was called Pax Romana. It was the peace of Rome. And in Roman's empire at that time, guess what they did? They built incredible roads. And they really had some peace at the time. Do you know how Christianity spread as quickly as it did? Hey, because of God's grace through Pax Romana. It was through the incredible infrastructure that they put together that Christianity went out. So we pray for the leaders of, above us. We pray in a certain way that the mission will flourish, um, that, that, that we will have peace. Then, then unbelievably, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, he's going to say in Jeremiah 29, uh, to those who are in exile, those who were so bad in their behavior, they were kicked out of the promised land, and they were in Babylon. And when you read through Scripture, God's people are not supposed to be in Babylon. Babylon is a bad place for God's people. It's, it, it's antithesis of what God would embrace as true. And so here they are in Babylon, exiled. And God says to the prophet Jeremiah, here's what I want you to do. Incredible, Jeremiah 29. I want you to seek the welfare of the city, the peace and prosperity in which I've sent you. As it prospers, you will prosper. Pray for its peace and prosperity. Even in Babylon, in so many ways, that's where we live. We are to pray and seek the peace and prosperity of the community in which God has placed us in. As our community prospers, we prosper in Christ Jesus. So why? So also that we could, so we can uh, uh, have these peaceable lives so the mission will flourish, but also godly and dignified for our witness to sparkle. Pray for your leaders in a way that, that we can live godly and dignified lives. Uh, pray that we can live out our talks. Uh, certainly, we know that leaders have not always led godly and dignified lives. And certainly we think of all kinds of people, even David, who would stumble and fall. But we gotta, we've been called to live godly and dignified lives. Why are we praying this way? And then he goes on to say, because God's desire is to save all. For God so loved the world, that he would give his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is God's wish. I want you to do this. I'm going to do something. We're going to jump in the deep end for a minute theologically. Stick with me. Okay? God's desire is for all people to be saved, it says. Now, what we want to say is this is God's wish. This is God's wish, and there's a difference between God's wish and God's will. God's wish, hang with me, is his perceptive will. It says that God desires all to be saved. What an incredible loving God. Think about that. What a loving God. Is that not loving? God desires for all to be saved. How gracious of God. But are all saved? No. All aren't saved. Now, now we ask the question, can God desire something that's not fulfilled? He's God. Now watch this. If God desires something and it doesn't happen, we have a problem. Because God is not sovereign in control over all things. If God's desires are thwarted, whoa, what is strong enough? What, what, what is big enough that could stop God's desires from happening? The prophet Isaiah now, throughout Scripture says, no, what God wills will happen. So we see that this is really something when it says God's desires for all to be saved. Is he talking about every single person? No, we really want to say what he means is all types. All types of people. Not every single person. 
when we look at the end of the time, we're going to see that there are some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group that God has uniquely loved and called to himself. That is who God desires to save. So God's perceptive will uh, that he has a, a love for all people. I love what the prophet Ezekiel says. He says in a couple times, Ezekiel 18, and I also believe it's in 36, he says, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And you know, he's not up there thinking, oh man, this is fantastic. The wicked are dying. He's like, oh man, I take no delight in it. Yet, God is glorified in the death of the wicked. His justice and holiness are magnified. So you hear you have a wish of God that, man, all will come to Christ, but the will of God is different. God's elect will be saved. God's children will come home. All those who are appointed to eternal life will believe. I love this passage in the book of Acts. Acts 13, 48, it's one of Paul's missionary journeys. Here he is preaching the gospel, and here's what it says in Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who were those who believed? Those whom God appointed to eternal life. All of the ones he appointed, he desires to come home. He will not lose one of his sheep. God will never be frustrated that someone he loved with a unique way before time began will not respond to the gospel. He's not up there wringing his hand saying, man, I hope they come. I sure hope that they'll come. I hope that they like me. I hope they like Jesus. I hope they love him. He's like, no, no, no. I mean, I sent my son to rescue lost sheep, and my grace is going to be sufficient that not only am I not going to lose any of them, I'm going to, I'm going to give them a gift of faith. Uh, and they freely and joyfully are going to embrace me. So when we looked at this, this is really important for this all. This, this what's God's wish versus God's will. But we also see Jesus' unique ability to save all. It says God has a desire to save all, but God is the only one who has the ability to save all. How can he do that? Well, there's one God who desires salvation and one God who's able to provide and make that available to all to secure it. He says it this way. There's one mediator between God who's holy, eternal, and man who is sinful and needy. There's only one who can bridge the gap between heaven and hell. There's only one. And it says, very interesting, the man, Christ Jesus, here emphasizing the humanity of Christ, as well as the divinity of Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. In Jesus, a beautiful mystery, we have one who is fully God and one who is fully man. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, is the only one who's able to bridge the chasm between holy God and sinful man, the chasm between heaven and earth. As God, he's able to endure the wrath of God poured upon him for our sins. And as man, he's able to fulfill the requirements of man. You need to have both. A man had to fulfill the law, and the man, Christ Jesus, fulfilled it. On the cross, someone had to absorb God's wrath, and, and our, our, our Savior Jesus, fully God, absorbs the wrath of God. And it says that Jesus was a ransom for all. He paid the price. A ransom is a payment that is paid for those who are held captive. It's a payment to set them free. But you, we have this Jesus who's a ransom for all. Did he make a payment for all of, eternity, all of humanity, every single person who ever lived? 
Well, why does Mark 10, 45 give us these words that Jesus, uh, for even the Son of Man, he says, this is Jesus' own words, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the question is, Jesus' death on the cross paid the ransom to set free, uh, uh, captives free. He did pay that, but who are the many? Did he die for all? Did he die for the many? Again, the all, all sorts of people. Scripture will tell us that Jesus laid his life down for his sheep. Jesus died for his church, Ephesians 5. Jesus died for his own. There was no blood wasted on the cross. Jesus didn't hang on the cross and die for those who would never come. He would never waste a drop of his blood. Jesus died, watch this, to pay a price, to pay a ransom, not the possibility for the ransom to be paid. If depending upon, if Jesus died for everybody to have the possibility, he didn't die for anybody. And the only reality is he paid the price for yours and my sins for his children. And he didn't give it just the possibilities. Sins were paid. It was there. He paid the price for all kinds. Jew, Gentile, free, slave, male, female, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? For Paul's calling to share the gospel to all. Preach the gospel to all. Paul will say, I've been called to preach to the Gentiles. Talking to a mostly Jewish audience. Are you kidding me? You're going into to that area. You're preaching the good news of our God to those pagans. I thought they were our enemies. No, he says the gospel is to be pray, paid for all, all kinds of people. I want to tell you a story. My, my favorite preacher is a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He lived in London in the 1800s. And in my goodness, I never went to seminary. Uh, an amazing man of God. And when he preached, people listened. And man, could he preach the beauties and the glories of Christ Jesus. He would fill up places to come hear him preach. And so he believed this. He believed everything that was in God's word. Theologically, uh, he and I would be something called reformed. Uh, we would be believing in this. And he got, he got criticized. He said, no, wait a minute. Why are you offering the gospel to only the, to those who may never come? Why are you preaching to the whole world? Well, don't you know that, that only some are going to be respond? Those whom the Father draws, those are the only ones. Why are you preaching to everybody the good news of the gospel? He says, well, you point out the ones that are his, and I'll just preach to them. But until I know who's, the, who's part of God's elect, I'm going to preach to them all. And that's the same way for me. I know that there's a mystery here. God loves, has a love for all of his creation. And God has, it says that God desires all to be saved. And I think it's all types, not just us. And it's going to happen. But I don't think that, that, I think we miss it when we realize that God isn't sovereign over all things, including the bringing home of his people. And may we preach the gospel boldly to all, knowing that God will draw his own home. Not only that, uh, we also have prayer in all kinds of places. It says pray in every place. Some religions will say you've got to face a certain direction, pray in a certain temple. But we are the place where God's spirit dwells. We are the temple of living God. He says, pray, pray in all places. We don't need to have a special place for God to hear us. Pray wherever you are. And it says, pray with holy hands, not clenched fists. Pray with men, pray with holy hands, not in quarreling, not in arguing. Pray with a pure heart. Pray loving your brother, knowing that you too are a sinner. Pray not with clenched fists, with holy hands. Pray that which is pure. And again, there's so much to say about 
the adorning of women. But next week, oh man, pray for next week's message. We're going to talk about roles of, of men and women in the church next week. So if you don't run me out by next week, we're in good place. So it's, it's going to be God's word. It's amazing. Um, but what I want you to see here is a key word that says likewise. It says, men, I want you to pray with holy hands. I don't want you to play with quarreling and arguing. I want you to pray in all places. I want you to be men of prayer. And it says, likewise. Likewise, women. What is it? You know what likewise means? You should be praying too. Right alongside them. You should be praying as well. Women, likewise, be praying in this kind of way. But make sure that your adornment isn't external. Make sure you're not calling attention to yourself. You're offering prayers to heaven. It says, prayer, prayer, pray without ostentation. That is the key here. Don't point to yourselves. May we be a church that's a praying church. May we be a church, and this is key, and may we be Christians that are praying Christians, all of us. Today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of a sacrifice that opened the door for us to heaven, for us through one mediator, Christ Jesus, to allow our prayers to be heard. How great is our great God. Let us pray. And Father God, we thank you for the first importance is communication with you. And we thank you that you would love us enough to come and open up that communication line through the life, death, and resurrection of your son. God, we love you, and we're so grateful that we're yours. And God, may we be a church that's a praying church, and may we be a people that's a praying people. God, thank you for using our prayers to accomplish your will. Thank you for your heart for the entire world, for all kinds of people. Thank you for your challenge, and thank you for your truth. God, we pray that you would remind us of the sacrifice that your son made for us so that we would be able to pray. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.